If you are looking to become a better leader in the outdoor adventure world, in the business world, or both, this is the Leading Steep Podcast. I'm Barry Cruz. In this podcast, I'm speaking with some of the leaders and adventure guides I admire most from around the world. I'll try and ask them the same questions you would, and I hope they'll share stories and practical ideas that we can all use to become better leaders. Welcome to the Leading Steep Podcast. Hello, listener friends. For the last few episodes, you've heard me say that I was proud to tell you this program was being brought to you by The Ready State. That was genuinely true. This time around, I'm proud to tell you that I'm interviewing some very dear friends, remarkable former guides, great business people, and the founders of The Ready State, Kelly and Juliet Starrett. Now, please don't think there was some sort of quid pro quo here. Kelly and Juliet have always been on my list to interview because I admire them so greatly. You'll hear, I'm lucky to have them on the show. But about six weeks ago, Juliet called me up and said, Barry, we love the program, we love the concept, and we want to sponsor you. Although I've been mentioning other companies and products I like, I really hadn't seriously focused on promoting or monetizing the show. But for the fact that this dear and hugely successful friend had called me up and wanted to participate... Well, I'm proud to be affiliated with them in any way. And in the meanwhile, Kelly and Juliet are some of the most self-actualized people I know, and both skilled former guides themselves. I won't spoil this conversation with too much background. I've shared some of that with you in the promos for each of the last few weeks. But here are a couple of distinctions. The Ready State has more than a million active followers online around the world. They've sold more than a half million books. They've been hired by elite athletes around the world, have world championship trophies themselves, and were recognized by First Lady Michelle Obama for important fitness work on behalf of kids. This interview is longer than my typical programs, but I hope you'll hang in there for the conversation. If you want to shorten things, jump to the second half of the program where Kelly and Juliet start to share some really deep wisdom about leadership and business. There are some key takeaways I've incorporated into my own life and with my work and family. I'm really pleased to be able to share these with you. Kelly and Juliet launched The Ready State on a shoestring in a backyard and bootstrapped it to massive success because they're courageous people and natural hosts, skills they say they learned as guides. Here's Dr. Kelly and Juliet Starrett on Leading Steep. Juliet and Kelly, I'm so thrilled and grateful to have you on the show. You know, I'm enamored with all of my guests, all of the guides and leaders that I'm speaking with, but I love the two of you. I respect and admire you such a great deal. It's just a great gift to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. Barry, we are delighted to be here and we feel the same about you. You are a legend, so it's our honor to be here. Facts. Thanks, of course, we guys. say in our family, true fact. True fact. True fact. All right. Good. We're going to hear all about the Starrett family. This is my first interview with a couple of folks, so this is going to be even more fun. And my listeners, they're going to be thrilled with your energy and your knowledge and your wisdom. So first of all, maybe we just back up for a moment and describe for our friends how we all first met. Juliet, you want to start? You and I work together as river guides and based out of Coloma, California. And if my memory serves me correctly, we worked quite a few trips together on the Yuba River, the North Yuba, lots of trips on the South Fork of the American. Um, I remember even then, like being like, wow, Barry is like the first adult I know, because at that time, <laughs> you were sort of beyond your full time guiding career. You'd actually you actually were living in this like dope flat in Oakland and you had a you had like a weekday job. So you were a full on weekend warrior. And I just remember being like, wow, that guy's cool. And he just comes up here on the weekend. I think you drove a did you have I did. a Saab? A Saab convertible. I love that car. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I don't you, even make it you anymore. Had a Saab. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we just, you know, we worked together as river rafting guides, you know, starting in the 90s. So that's kind of where it, it comes together for me. I think I met you early on when I was begging you to come to work at Voyages. You were the manager of the business there. And I was like, hey, can you put me on the schedule? You think you can get me on a North Yuba <laughs> trip or something? You know, right? Yeah, I know. It's like maybe it, maybe that was the start. Like maybe I hired you, Barry Cruz. Yeah, I don't know. Very, but very... Um, if so, it was it was a good hire. It's very endearing, by the way, that you call me Barry Cruz, because there are just a few people in my life who call me Barry Cruz and almost always call me Barry Cruz. So I just Oh, yeah, it's only Barry Cruz. 
you were probably the first person who had health insurance. <laughs> you actually true. were probably the first person who like had paid off their student loan debts. You didn't <laughs> sleep on a futon. Like you, for you, for represented like what was possible that you could still keep a foot planted in your guide experience and still actually contribute. <laughs> well, thank you, Kelly. Way. Thank you, Kelly. And, and Julia, I do remember that we had a wonderful little club of guides working for Whitewater Voyages. For Bill McGinnis, our motto was adventure, friendship, growth. It was just a great spirit. There was just an amazing esprit de corps in that club. And for all guides, there was kind of this mutual respect and, and admiration and appreciation because in some fashion, we all had one of those lives in our hands. And had the responsibility for the people that we were with, had their lives in our hands. Hey, let's back up for a few years further, though. Kelly, you have a fascinating story about your childhood and how you got into whitewater boating and how you ultimately ended up a river guy. Well, I was a lonely child in the mountains of Bavaria. <laughs> in the mountains of Bavaria. I grew up in, I had a single working mother. We moved to Germany when I was in the first or second grade. At the time, there was a, the little mountain town where I lived was a army recreation, European forces recreation place where people could come and recreate. They trained a lot of the infantry and mountain tactics there. They taught wilderness survival, those kinds of things. And so our community of expatriates, expats were all guides. So when I was 12, it was sort of a rite of passage and I jumped into a kayaking program and was the only you know child in this adult kayaking program. But something happened where... Um, it made sense to me. And I asked them at lunch, can you teach me to roll? And they were like, that's something we don't teach beginners. And I was like, well, you should teach me. Just show me. And uh, for some reason, it made sense to me upside down. I rolled the first time I ever tried to roll a kayak. Wow. And everyone was just kind of like, Whoa. And by the way, he's so annoying. He's never not rolled ever since that day either. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like I can't even feel congratulatory towards him because it's kind of annoying. So I will, I mean, touch wood here, but I have taken a lot of world-class beatings on the river, as we all do. But I have only ever swam out of kayak one time when I was... 17 or 18 and I it was because I was in a gravel bar and I was just being dragged in a gravel bar with swirls and I stood up that was my swim I was like well I was dumb like, why? you know so but for some reason though imagine that at age 12 you learned to kayak or you learned to roll and then the first time I was on the river I remember exactly where I was in Garmish flipped over with a woman and an, an instructor and I heard them screaming because here's the 12 year old kid who's flipped over and this oh woman's God, like, yeah. oh my God, I've just killed the child. <laughs> and I remember thinking I'm upside down, you know, rocks are swirling around my head and the water's green and very clear. And I was like, oh, they told me I should roll here. This is what I'm supposed to roll. So I just rolled up. And I think one of the things that that did for me was give me this really immense sense of fake self-confidence <laughs> that this place is actually a much more enjoyable experience because kayaking is arguably the hardest adult skill you can learn. To run a river is really a difficult, but to take in all of the processing, to understand where you're going in real time, it takes so much time. And so I'm so lucky that I jumped forward, skipped over a whole bunch of beatings. I caught that shoots and ladder game where I took the ladder all the way up to 99, basically as a, yeah. as a child. And then that really set the hook deep. And so I started paddling early and then got my first job teaching kayaking when I was 14 there locally because they were like you you're kind of the young kid and um i just mimicked and i loved it fast forward i'm in high school i kayak a little bit but really want to get back to it and i went to university of colorado boulder and there was a great kayak club there and i discovered this community at university and we spent four hours in a week in the pool learning to roll learning to hand roll playing around and our whole life became organized around boating and then guiding in the summer and then rinse, wash, repeating for literally, I mean, a long, long time. And it really, it really just changed because I've, I met all these incredible people. And I honestly have to say, our mindset about being a guide, our mindset about, because we were all became raft guides too, you yeah. have to do everything. Yep. And then simultaneously, so many of the people I met, you know, like if there, if that first role doesn't happen, I'm not sure I meet Juliet. Yeah, right. I'm not sure... You know, I see the world in the same way. I'm not sure, uh, you know, I paddled canoe on the U.S. Kunai kayak team. And I don't think if any of that happens if I didn't set that hook and have such a positive experience on the river early on. And here I am still paddling. And honestly, you know, I fell in love with whitewater kayaking again last summer. But the elegance and simplicity of being on a river trip on a raft with their family is unparalleled. And 
basically being able to teleport my old male body brain into a, these modern kayaks and having the most fun I've ever had in my whole life in the kayak because the technology is so good is bananas. So I, I'm still a boater. I'm still a dirtbag boater. In fact, I'll just say, finish this, that really Juliet and I are trying to get back to our 19-year-old selves. We want to live in our van down by the river, comma, with health insurance and 401k. All right, so back up, Julia, for me with your childhood and how you got exposed to the river and where that became real for you. Yeah, well, I actually grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, my dad was an atmospheric physicist at NCAR there, which is that beautiful building up on the hill in Boulder. And he was like a great outdoorsman. And on top of that, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up either. So like the way that we vacationed as a family was to camp and fish and go on river trips. And like, that's sort of what we did. You know, we didn't fly to Hawaii or do any, you know, anything like that. So our sort of family vacations were all centered around like some outdoor activity. But I was talking with my friend Jim about these moments that Kelly sort of referenced that are just these single moments in your life that really do kind of alter like the Gaia moment, like it alters the whole course of your life. And... I think it was for me, my dad and a group of these ragtag scientists, all of them atmospheric uh, climate science guys from NCAR, decided to put together this two-week canoe trip on the San Juan River. And um, I think it was like 1978 or something, or maybe 1981, like it was very early. And it was a full two-week trip. We just had like some stuff in dry bags, and I remember we ate a lot of crackers and cheese Whiz. And you know, peanut butter. But I mean, I, I think as a kid, I was like, this is awesome. And I actually just, even though I was seven years old, I distinctly remember a lot of the side hikes we took. That was sort of my first experience of like that, you know, sort of pace of a long river trip where you're floating down the river, you get to camp, you set up, and then you go explore what's on the side of the river. And it was sort of my first experience of realizing like, there are these places you can only get to on earth if you've floated down the river to get to them, right? You can so get to true. these grottos and swimming holes and you know, you can't you can't hike into them, you can't reach them from the outside. I mean the same is obviously true on the Grand Canyon. There are these spectacular things you can see in the only way to access them. But I mean I loved that trip. And I think even in that photo I posted on Instagram, you can see like you can literally see emanating from my seven year old person deep Just stoke. Yeah, deep stoke, the joy of the river. Deep yeah. stoke. Yeah. yeah. So I've you know and, and we grew up skiing and camping and playing outside and I always loved that. But then I went to college at UC Berkeley, and during my freshman year, I actually was taking this hilarious class called Ecosystemology, like a thing that this professor had made up. It was in the Environmental Sciences Department, and I was in that class with Dave Katechi and Hans Abramson, who were two guides you know well and we both worked with. And Dave and I were sitting with Hans and talking about this research we'd done that we had some kind of funny, like 18 year old motivations, I'll be honest. Like we knew we needed a summer job. We wanted to be tan. We wanted to like be with the other sex. We want to have a good time. And, you know, like somehow for us, like becoming a river guide sort of fit all those things. So we had known we wanted to go to guide school, but we weren't sure. Should we go to Cal Adventure? Should we do this? And, and Hans, actually, I'll never forget. He goes, no, no, no. There's this guy, Bill McGinnis you have to go to his guide school. Like he is the, like, if you're going to go to guide school, you have to go to his guide school. And you know, that's one of those other key decisions because I actually think if I had landed in some of the other companies that I was searching for, it may not have been such an impactful part of my life. I may not have lasted. You know, when we're talking about ethos, I learned so much from that guy. And I- About being a host. About being a host and what it means to sort of take care of big groups of people and help people have a good time. It was winter, it was cold. I think we were wearing dry suits. And man, I the people who taught my guide school were like within 24 hours of being there, I was like, these people are my idols. It's like they have a superpower. Yeah, superpower. I mean, I just was so impressed. And, you know, so a bunch of the people on my guide school had guided internationally on the Zambezi and the Fudalifu. Yeah. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is amazing. So, I mean, I wanted to be a guide like from the get-go. And then one of the other beauties, and I think what so drew me in was this like amazing moment in time where we were working at Whitewater Voyages when Bill had every permit on every river in Cal- all over California and yeah. including on the Rogue. You know, I spent my first two seasons working like enough to make money, but I did all the training trips. I mean, I was on the Tuolumne and the Merced and the Stanislaus and the Upper Klamath. I mean, anytime there was a chance for me to just go join any trip that was happening, I did. Because it was just amazing. I mean, I saw rivers up and down the whole coast. I thought I, I fell in love with sort of seeing the world on a river trip. There's something about um, part of this was like you were getting, it was the experience where 
we just sought experience. Like we, yeah. you know, we would never said no to a trip. There was exactly. Always, Say there was yes no to everything. Pro- yeah. And that re- that mindset really just, I think, catapulted us ahead in terms of, yes, we're in, we're in. We had a, the guidebook in Colorado. Someone had put out a Creeks book and literally we would open it up. And the second we had a day off, we would choose a new Creek, drive there, hope there's water, maybe call the flow phone. Maybe there is water, the maybe phone. there's not the flow phone. Kelly, we and did then, the same. We had the, we, here in California, we had Jim Cassidy and Friar Calhoun's California Whitewater. And then there was a book yeah. by Lars Holbeck and Chuck Stanley, which was the best whitewater in the state of California. And it was, you know, the dog-eared, right? It was just worn out because like you, we were just picking rivers. We wanted to go see something new. It was an amazing time. And, you know, we, were, we had the stamina too where we would work all day and then yeah. kayak in the evening. Yeah, like right. sometimes it was like it was like a full like thirteen hours on the river, and then rinse, wash, repeat. Yeah, sleep on sleep in the parking lot, and we were so rich. I mean, I think if you got tipped, you were rich. We'd go and, get uh, Mexican food with our tips. Yeah. Oh my gosh! So you, you know, didn't you didn't have very high living expenses? I think I had three pairs of Patagonia shorts that I lived in all summer, every single day. Patagonia shorts. Hey, backing up to one theme though, you know, Bill McGinnis probably doesn't get the credit that he deserves in this entire industry. And he's still called a legend and yet still doesn't get the credit. He wrote the book, Whitewater Rafting, published by the New York Times. He wrote the book, The Guide's Guide, and we had the benefit of being there. You learned how to run a trip. Like there was so, you know, Julian and I ran a gym in the city for 15 years and People are like, you know, like this is the most welcoming gym I've ever been to. You make people yeah. shake hands. You yeah. like we what we, we guided that thing. And so many of the lessons we've taken into our business and were because we learned how to manage and interact to be responsible for people who obviously could not be responsible for themselves in that environment. They didn't have the experience, they have any context. And so much of that distilled experience you know, just made it into our lives about how we see things getting done, how we run river trips still today, and even how we ran our businesses, you know, taking care of people first. I want to come back to your business, but again, that's part of the the foundation of this book and this idea. When I transitioned to the business world, Juliet, even before you and I met, I was a weekend warrior guide, but working in the business world. Every day in the business world, I'd be thinking about things that I'd learned on the river, that I'd learned as a guide about how to communicate properly, about how to treat people with grace and courtesy, how to create a a specific plan and start from front to back, how to give people expectations on a daily basis about what we should anticipate. And how to react when things go wrong. Right, so right, yeah, exactly. Guaranteed they're gonna go wrong, you know? Um, I just, I have to go back quickly to Bill McGinnis just to sort of like make sure on this episode we give that guy enough props. I'll talk more about him when we get to the business section and I think things that I specifically learned from him in terms of managing people and sort of running a company that. I think I sort of that was your first company around. Yeah, and and um, also he sort of gave me like my first break at managing people, right? Like by the time I was 20 years old, I was the manager of this big operation at Whitewater Voyages because they obviously saw that I sort of had like some organizational skills and management skills or whatever. But like that was really sort of my first like big leadership position where I had people working for me, and you know it's kind of been like that ever since. But I mean that was at 20 years old. But I just want to tell you that I recently couldn't find my copy of the guide's guide, so I ordered a new one, and it was because. I was trying to explain to my kids that when you're trying to figure out how much lunch meat to buy and how much meat to cook for dinner for people, like it's still burned into my mind. Like if I have guests over for a dinner party, I'm always like half pound of meat per person for dinner, quarter pound of meat per person for lunch. Like <laughs> like literally like that, that guy, yeah. It's just still like instilled in me. And anyway, it's so fun to go back and look at that book. I just was like so delighted to get it on Amazon. I mean, it's still everything he says in there is still totally relevant about how to run a good river trip. So much of what running a river prepares you for is not knowing what's going to happen. You're going to have to show up and find out for yourself. And And your past experience does not predict your success this time around. And that humiliating experience really set, I feel like that set Juliet and I up to be so comfortable handling risk and uncertainty and really saying, well, we're gonna get started and we'll see what happens. Because that's what you, at some point you gotta line up and then react. You know, I've only just started thinking about this, especially as sort of like the role of being a woman and now being a woman CEO is coming up more in my life and I'm talking about it. You know, river guiding was like gender equality 20 years early. Oh man. I mean, I, I don't even think I've really processed like how important that was, you know, I mean you and any river company, you know, half the guides were women 
And all the women were carrying the heavy things and lifting heavy things and guiding down class four, class five, class three rivers. They tended um, to be better guides because they couldn't just muscle and cheat and yeah. And, yeah. But and it really like themselves out. I don't know if I, you know, I don't even, I haven't even fully processed in my mind. Like, but I, I just, as we were talking, I was thinking, man, like that was also another really special thing. I mean, I mean, I don't know if Whitewater Voyages was unique at that time, and maybe that was just this sort of unique experience we had. But I mean, it was very gender equal. It felt like there were equal opportunities for men and women. I mean, I obviously was immediately rolled into this kind of management and leadership role, like almost, you know, immediately upon joining the company. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's really important and I'm sure very influential in my own life. And when we would go scout a rapid together, there was no difference, male or, or female. Everybody was going to get bashed at Maytag, you know, so. That's right. It really is. You know, I, if I think of all the legendary Grand Canyon guides, the first 10 that pop in my head are women. Like, I can't even think of any men, and there are plenty of male, but the women, I, I, maybe it's just my own blinders, but... Uh, You've reminded me of Aurea Rusis, right? She's oh, in, okay. she's still legend. guiding, yeah, still she's guiding, legend. and legend yeah. has been everywhere in the world to guide, and, and she's a, an extraordinary guide and a, a wonderful human. I want to pivot now to your business because I want to hear about how you connected from whitewater world into the corporate world. So let's talk about that then. The segue from being river guides and then to the business that you've built from that time to today. Yeah, you know, I will start by saying, and maybe this is uh, dates back to our sort of guide ethos and, and sort of how we approach life. We never, we, we have had two businesses and we did not start either business planning for it to be a business. We, in both cases, started our businesses because we want to help people or because we want to do something cool and fun. But in neither case did we ever expect to make any money. That was never the plan. So if, if I start with our first business, which was San Francisco CrossFit, which as a subtext had to close um, because of the pandemic after 15 years. But our first business was San Francisco CrossFit. And we opened that in 2005. At that time, Kelly was actually a graduate student in physical therapy. And I was working as a like a full on corporate lawyer at a big international firm. But we discovered this thing called CrossFit. And we just fell in love with it. We fell in love with this sort of training methodology. We started inviting our friends to train in the backyard. And we started, I, I think what really drew us to it is it sort of was immediately this way that we could create community around us. We realized at that time it was very early in this sort of CrossFit world. I mean, like very, very there early. Three CrossFits. Three CrossFits wow. in the world. So, I mean, the San, the San Francisco box, right? You call that gym a box? Yeah. This yeah. was one of the legendary early legendary charter members of the CrossFit we were world. the 21st yeah. gym in the world. 21st wow. gym to open CrossFit gym. But you know, we really opened it because we were like, this is fun. We're having a great time doing this. Our neighbors are getting mad because we're doing it in our backyard and being really loud and you know, in like tight San Francisco. And so we literally were like, well, we need to find a place to do this. And you know, I'll never forget actually the first night Kelly was coaching the classes. And by the way, Georgia was like six months old too. So I mean, this whole notion was crazy that we would start this gym. But again, we, we were not running it to make money for the first few years anytime we had like a plus in our bank account we would just use it to buy more equipment it wasn't like you know we were living off my lawyer salary but i'll we're, never we're basically river guide still like and we had I, I would became a river guide so i could get rich yeah and so and it didn't work <laughs> yeah. but i could use that extra money to buy more yeah. packing equipment kind of, yeah so it's kind of the same we were in you know we we built like a static website it was just a single page you couldn't click on anything you know there were like two classes a day um it was very rudimentary and i'll never forget kelly came home one night and he actually said this, uh, this guy who we're still friends with today, and Neil, shows up for class, and he's like the first person who shows up that we don't even know. But I remember for the early years, we would like just let people pay us on the honor system, like by writing a check. And I'm sure we were missing out on tons of money we could have collected or whatever. But, you know, it started to develop legs. And when we started to have like over 100 members, we thought, OK, OK, actually, there's something to this. It might be a business. But, you know, because there were so few CrossFits in the world, there were no models like we didn't have. You know, we couldn't go now today. You can go look at, you know, 15,000 other CrossFits and say what works for you, what works the for you. The business model. Work. Yeah, the plan. Right? There no business. You know, there was no proof of concept that it was a good business. No. We'll get started and it will yeah. we'll figure it out. But you know, we slowly started putting together systems and ways we could actually take a credit card. And, you know, we actually started hiring coaches and, you know, the thing started growing. And then in the midst of all that, Kelly graduated and brought us physical therapy practice into the gym, into this box that he called the pain cave, which has become legendary. Like if you were a guest <laughs> in the pain cave, it's like, you know, a badge of honor. But what he started seeing in the early days of running uh, his physical therapy office at the gym was that he would see like the same 
six problems. And what he noticed, so he would come home and he'd play like guess the problem to me. So I'm a lawyer, don't know anything about physical therapy. And he'd be like, okay, so this guy came in and his neck is, his neck is really sore. Like, what do you think his problem is? And I'm like, I don't know, tight shoulders or whatever. So it'd be this kind of joke we had. But what I think we started seeing is that all these people were injured and, and not catastrophic or, injuries, or in but you yeah. know, nagging pain and injury injuries coming to see him, taking time out of the workday. We're running a cash-based physical therapy practice. So they're paying, you know, a couple hundred bucks to come see Kelly during their workday. So there's like lost work hours, lots of money. They're in pain. And he's starting to see these patterns and thinking, man, like the problem here is that these people don't have any language to understand how their body is supposed to work and all the ways in which it's not working the way it's supposed to work. And so many of these problems could be corrected if people just did a little input on their own body, a little self-care at home for like 20 minutes. And so it's, you know, in a way we were like trying to put our physical therapy practice out of business, but that's what spawned what started as the mobility project where Kelly and I endeavored to make a video a day for 365 days on. And the key here is that technology was really important. You know, when we started this in 2009, the iPhone had just come out. And then the second version of the iPhone had come out such that you could take a video from your iPhone and directly upload it to YouTube from your iPhone. Incredible. Because I'll be honest, this would never have worked if we were filming these videos on a camera. That's had what we started. Connect it with a cord, upload it to the computer, then upload it to like we it just never would have been as effective, right? Kelly could just make these ridiculous, hilarious videos with his funny sense of humor, low quality audio, low quality video, but nobody cared because the content was gold. And we just started sort of chipping away at this. And so what has now become this big business back then was literally about like, hey, you know, people are really struggling with pain and injury and have zero idea how to take care of their body. And like, maybe we can throw up some free content on the internet and like help people out. Right. And so, so that's kind of how it all started, you know, and I eventually in, I think 2009 decided to leave my law practice. I I know a lot of people thought it was a crazy decision because I was just on the verge of being up for partner. I was making a lot of money at that point. And, you know, I was going off to run these like who two unknown health and fitness businesses, but to like tie this all back to river guiding and guiding. um, I think we both have zero doubt that this concept we were talking about, about being willing to take risk and, you know, not being afraid of the unknown, really just sort of set us up to be able to try it. And I think we were like, well, if it doesn't work out, he's a physical therapist and I'm a lawyer and like, we'll be good. Yeah. So it was a little bit like, that's how that's how we got started. And, and that mindset, I really just, you know, keeps paying off over and over. This, this weekend I was teaching in Tennessee and one of the things that I do is I make everyone introduce themselves still. And then, you know, we're not hugging it out as much, little yeah. knuckle bumps and elbow bumps. But that's a pattern I learned on the river, making guests introduce themselves on yeah. the raft because we were suddenly a unit and we needed to like get right. through this and people need an excuse to know each other. So, I mean, the things I'm still doing today, I cannot shake because of these early experiences. Um, Just to give you an idea of sort of like how early it was in the technology sphere, you know, we're making these videos, uploading them to YouTube. And actually it wasn't until like 2012 or 2013 when the business called, which used to be called Mobility Wad was actually a business. Like we had a revenue stream and so forth. Someone said, hey, just FYI, you guys, you have this video on YouTube and it's titled like IMG 2346 underscore 4567. And it has like a million views. So maybe you guys might want to add a title to it, right? So it just gives you an idea of like it didn't all that sort of stuff, you know, the ads and the perfect description and the subdescription and all the things that are going on now that like are a must have in order to be a digital business. Like it was the Wild West back then. Like we could get a million views on a video entitled IMG underscore one five four five seven, right? So um, let me give the perfect example of why you by being a guide should be something you want for your kids. Yeah. Because Juliet is guiding on the Tuolumne and one of their rafts flips. And this is maybe 2001, right? And two-thirds of the meal floats away because some young guy hasn't tied it in. And now they're they're basically going to have like – they have like hot we have dogs. We have like hot dogs and, and, and like whiskey for, and somebody, left for some, a three-day trip. And you're like, good. failed to rig for a flip, right? We got to rig yes. for a flip. Uh, they, so they, they, they failed they the cardinal rule. A gravity yeah. gravity load. They were using gravity, right, is the load. And <laughs> But my point is, what you do then is you're like, all right, we're having fried hot dogs for breakfast with a whiskey chaser. And, like, you work it out. And yeah. I think when you're just put into those situations, 
the idea is, man, you have to be creative. You have to have fun. You own the whole experience. And if you, if we could get more people to have those experiences, there would be a lot more creativity around solving some of our community problems, our neighborhood problems, our business problems, because you end up making do with what you have. lots of extemporization and really I think the compassionate leadership that you learn when you get into a really difficult situation. So the, the gym opened in 2005 and then at some point, Kelly, you, you wrote an extremely successful book and that was one of the launching moments for the rest of your business as well. Julia and I wrote a book called Becoming a Supple Leopard in 2013. I'm, I'm lead author, but Commonly known as Supple Leopard, right? That's Supple that's Leopard. What, yeah. And that was a tough time because we didn't really go on vacation a lot. We wrote a book. And I, I can't recommend it for everyone, but it was something that we felt compelled to do and knew it was a big idea at the time. And as things were maturing a little bit in the strength and conditioning and performance world, a little bit of what was happening in strength and conditioning as this field blew up, we were starting to see this industrialization, just like the industrial medicine complex, this industrial sports complex. Now we have this industrial strength conditioning complex. And we knew at this moment that, you know, as people were, you know, we're seeing more and more boot camp classes and soul cycle and, and things that smacked of fitness and preparation really didn't look like this auteur experience or we're going to use strength conditioning to re-empower people's lives. And I think we were on the idea that this book could be that catalyst. So right book, right time, right moment. It's a very it's a very technical book, right? I mean, it's a big book of the human body and yeah. the protocols that you're using to it's get better. Let, yeah. Yeah. Let, let me just add a couple things to that. You know, it was full on. This thing is a textbook. I forget yeah. how many pages it is, but it's a textbook. It's full color print. It probably has thousand photos in it or something. I mean, the photography yeah. in it is insane. We took 10,000 um, photos. Yeah, we took 10,000 wow. photos to make it happen. But, you know, people don't really make money writing books, right? Like, it's not it's a not thing. You, write a book. you don't write a book to you don't write a book to make money because it's a it's, it's, it's a calling card. You know, you use yeah. it to gain expertise. And, and it's not to say people don't, but it's like such a small percentage of people. And nobody makes money on a book or a book like Supple Leopard is never successful. So one of the things that makes me really happy about Supple Leopard is that, you know, we call it a unicorn because it's just this book that like, it's a $60 textbook that's like very technical about the human body. And sold like, a half million and, copies. And it, yeah, it's wow. sold a half million copies. It's like one of the most sellingest health and fitness books of all time. But um, what I love is learning from our agent, like how shocked the publishing world was about <laughs> Supple Leopard. With this because, super you know, technical textbook. That, yeah, I mean, none of them, really weird name. none okay. of them would have touched that thing with a 10 foot pole. And we were actually lucky enough to work with this sort of independent book publisher called Victory Belt, who was like willing to give it a go and had been publishing some kind of jujitsu books and some diet and health and fitness really books, really took a risk on it. And I find that to be so funny that this funny random textbook with a funny name, just like that everyone in New York in the publishing world was like, what in the hell is this book? But you know, it's a unicorn. I mean, it, you know, it continues to sell. We've had two editions of it. We'll probably do a third edition partly because if you look at the photos of Kelly in that book, he looks like he's like 20 two years old and <laughs> so hair. you know just you know the, the concepts are I've still and optimism yeah the, the concepts are still totally <laughs> totally relevant today but you know the photography is like totally out of date so you know you we'll know, probably update so, that so what, what, what i want to focus on though is that this then opened up another enormous yeah. world for you where now you're on a first name basis with some of the most well-known athletes in the world and you're you know training olympians you're training people in the nfl i mean talk about that leap kelly how did that happen well, it turns out everyone we know has shoulders and everyone has a spine <laughs> and it really doesn't, you know, people think, for example, that they, what they're doing is really unique. Like, no, 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 I'm a swimmer. I'm like, well, it's not that many, you don't do that many things with your shoulder in swimming and it's really similar to these other positions. And so Julia and I created a model that explains current phenomenon, explains why you're moving the way you are and what you can't do and can do. And if you have complete position or not, it predicts how you're going to move. And so you can communicate what you're seeing, which is, of course, the hallmarks of all good models. But we were able to synthesize so much information and codify it in a really unique and synthesize in a really unique and novel and new way. Yeah. And it continues to open doors. And as people are moving into machine learning and computer vision technology, everyone's realizing they've got all this technology, but they don't know what to look for. And it turns out we've been doing it 
now for over a decade and kind of have some experience here. And what's so interesting then is we created a model that you can drop in on top of whatever your sport is to explain what's happening. At whatever level, right? Like so really you're a beginner what we're Pilates, doing, we can what do yeah, you could, what we're doing is as applicable to like a beginner trying Pilates for the first time as it is to like Drew Brees in the NFL. Really, like it because matter. it's all about what Kelly calls first principles. And, you know, the human body is the human body. And, you know, if you're using your body in any way, those principles really aren't different when it comes down to it. You know, he's not going to say this about himself. So I think I've discovered that Kelly has many superpowers, but I think one of his superpowers. And it's I think, ice cream. well, he does really like <laughs> cookies and ice cream. But one of his superpowers that I've sort of like process and realize over the last few years as I've seen it happen. And I think this is part of the reason why professional athletes and sort of A-list people like to work with them as well as like regular people is that talking to Kelly for a lot of these people is like the first time they've been given hope because, you know, our current medical system is 100% not set up to be able to deal with people with their nagging chronic pain and injury and especially not orthopedic injuries. And I'll give you a piece of data. Up until the year 2000, the number one reason why people visited their primary care physician was because of the common cold. And since 2000 to now, the most common reason is orthopedic injuries. But, you know, your traditional musculoskeletal pain pain injury. And the thing is, is that what your physician has in the toolkit is one of two things. One, they're either going to be able to prescribe you some kind of pain medication. Or two, what happens more commonly is the doctor will say, and understandably, I'm not, you know, bashing doctors. What a doctor will say is, well, every time you swim, your shoulder is killing you. You need to stop swimming. Yeah. But the challenge there is super reasonable, right? Super reasonable that a doctor would suggest that. But the challenge is, is that. For so many of us, what we do physically is what literally brings us joy and how we connect with community. And so being told that you cannot do the thing you love is like a severing and it's really emotional for people. And I think one of Kelly's great gifts and, and you know, some of the work we've done with the Ready State together is that it's like the first time people are being given hope and permission that like their body isn't used up and should be thrown in the dumpster that there's hope that if they do the work and put in the time that they can actually be able to do the things they love. And I do think that's his superpower. And I think that the supple leopard was sort of the base of that. And then I think that's this sort of like, if we're talking about river guide ethos, that's the ethos he takes in to working with. Yeah. You just just got your ass kicked in last rapid, but there's another rapid coming up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We better get it together. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he's not going to say that about himself, but like, that's a really special gift he has when he works with people and it's unusual they don't experience that my sense of your superpower kelly and juliet as an amazing partner is just that you are an extraordinary communicator you're a charismatic speaker and you obviously are a world's leading expert on the on the human body and on, i had to on give all those therapy, safety but, talks in front yeah, of strangers. <laughs> safety talks as a guide got you prepared to to speak the way that you do but you have an enormously engaging style you blend really technical knowledge with charm and humor and, and patience for your students. It's really fun. And I, you have an amazing uh, world-class talent for that. And you also happen to be able to do that for folks like Laird Hamilton and Barry Zito and Drew Brees and so many other people. It's been pretty astonishing. You know, what's interesting now is we have been doing this for a minute and it takes, I remember we were freshman in college we're teaching kayaking and rafting, and one of our friends was Pat Lassalm. He was a really good boater, a little bit older than us, and really, like, we worshipped him, Corey. And we were like, okay, Corey, like, what's the secret? Like, we pulled him aside, and we're like, what's the secret? And he's like, we're like, some stroke, some defect, something. And he was like, laps. And we were like, what? What What, what does that mean? Like, laps. Like, we like he walked away, and we were like, laps? What? 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 That's it. That's like, the secret. Like, laps? That's the secret? And what he meant was, there is no substitution for experience. And... Juliet and I are lucky that early on in this field, we are able to accumulate a tremendous amount of experience. Like, you know, the founder of Microsoft, what's his name? I'm just kidding. (laughs) You know, he had a thousand hours making punch cards, Bill Gates, before the thing hit. We had 10,000 hours of practice before the thing started. And so we were really able to take the laps and distill it down again I sound hokey, and I know I've got white water on the brain, but the river is really a predictable environment if you know what to see. And there is no more complex, chaotic system in the known universe than the human body, but it obeys basic principles. 
And so when we started to figure out some of these basic principles, because we were hanging out with gymnasts and Olympic lifters and powerlifters and running athletes and, and all of these people, we got to see the, the synthesis of what the hip is supposed to do and how to restore that. So now fast forward and, you know, it's, if you're an expert, if you're Barry Cruz, you get invited on a lot of river trips. Yeah. And every river trip you go on, your river tripping gets a little bit better. I would just say on, for us, like, you know, A, we're not famous. You know, some people have come up to Kelly and said, oh, Kelly, you're famous. And Kelly's like, Brad Pitt is famous. I am not famous. Like, sure. like we just want to make it very clear that, like, Kelly is well known in a very niche universe. Famous would be, like, too broad of a for, word. For people who have shoulders. For people who have, like, a shoulder injury, <laughs> Kelly's famous. But I will say, because of the work we've done, we've actually been able to work with some, like, extraordinary people who and are teams. high performers and team. You know, they're performing at the highest level of whatever yeah. it is they're doing. And, I mean, that is fun. Like, when you get invited by Drew Brees to go to a Saints game and, you know, you sit with the owner in the owner's box, like, who is, like, that's fun. Yeah, you know, amazing. I mean, that's just, it's a, you know, we've had some, we've been able to have some fun experiences like that because of this funny then, well, thing but we've started. Don't discount this. I mean, you all are personal friends with Laird Hamilton and Gabrielle Reese, right? And, and you know, Tim Ferriss and, and Barry Zito and, and many other folks like this. I mean, you, you, you've kind of arrived in some fashion in yeah. some way, the as humble as you though, are. Yeah. The intersection was interesting is that the intersection is everyone has a body. Yeah. And everyone will bump into pain or have the experience that we've had where you can't do something. And so the intersection there is so interesting because suddenly we get to talk to business leaders. We're solving, I get to work with the senior leadership of the military and different branches. And we're suddenly trying to connect around solving problems. And that, that universality of the body and the human physical experience really does give us permission and access, which then begets because we have another data set. And so we do so much learning and we just keep trying to refine and break our model, which is all, all it is. So, I mean, I, I was a broke, I mean, when Juliet met me, I lived in my truck, you know, I had a room in Durango, I slept with my dog and, you know, she was like, stick with me, kid, come with me if you want to live. And then that is the truth. That is the God's honest truth. Thanks, Jay. So, so I got to say though, it hasn't been all sunshine and roses. Juliet, you've been through cancer that I know of at least twice. Kelly, you just yes. got your knee replaced. And I mean, these things are challenges. I mean, talk me through Juliet going through a couple of outs with cancer. Yeah, well, so the first time I had cancer, I was actually 20 years old, and I actually was working at Whitewater Voyages. I don't I remember think I that. knew you yet. Yep. Yeah, I, mean, I might have known you. Well, I remember um, that you'd gone but, through it. I remember hearing Yeah, that. so I was diagnosed at 20 years old with thyroid cancer, which is really weird, and like 20-year-olds don't get cancer, and I actually believe it was from growing up near this like super fun site in Boulder, Colorado, but you know that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, uh, not to be uh, insensitive, but um, Kelly created this word for it called faker's cancer. Now, don't get me wrong. I went through a big, gnarly nine-hour surgery. I had the recovery. I have been taking synthetic thyroid ever since. But if you're going to get cancer, getting thyroid cancer is like a pretty good one to get. I mean, just to sort of feel it like that. Like, it's a pretty curable kind of cancer, and I caught it when I was young. And so... Um, but, so but let me just say that part of the understanding of the thing that makes Juliet such a savage CEO and a savage business partner is that she does not suffer fools and she doesn't have time for bullshit. And I, that her cancer mindset really was like, oh, like you don't think your life can be snatched away from you, but it can. Well, and I think yeah. that first bout was, I think for me, where this sort of switch flipped at 20 where I was like, all right, like I've had this real, like I have had to face my mortality as a human in a, in a very young age. And that's where I determined like, I can't control if I get Lou Gehrig's disease or Parkinson's or another kind of cancer and die young. But I was like, I'll be goddamned if I'm gonna die of something I could have prevented with my lifestyle. So I think that's sort of what like started me down this path of kind of falling in love. And it's no surprise that I've, you know, ended up sort of dedicating my life to like, you know, health and wellness and fitness, right? I think that was sort of the beginning of it though for me, where I was like, I was like, look, like something might may take me out or maybe who knows, I might get hit by a bus. But I was like, I'm not gonna die of diabetes. Like, no way, that's not happening to me, right? So I think that was really important. And then, you know. And hang on, and let me just say that, you know, as we've gotten older, and I mentioned earlier, we're a little bit less interested in how fast we can go or how much we can move, or right? We are hyper obsessed with being durable. Yeah. Because what we're realizing now is we're just about to send our kids off to college, 
And we're about to have more free time to recreate again. Like we're yeah. going to be we're going to be going on living in the van. You, Barry right? Cruz. I yeah. hope so. And, gosh. Except it will be better organic chicken and less Subway <laughs> sandwiches, right? Yeah, so, less, less seven layer burritos. Less seven layer burritos, and you know that framework is a framework I hope everyone listens to this hears because you cannot reclaim that durability as easily as if you maintain it. And so now, fast forward to 2019. And Juliet is diagnosed with breast cancer and has a double mastectomy, you know, gets ahead of the cancer. But she bounced back at a freakish rate where, you know, it wasn't like, hey, can I put my arms over her head? She was like, you know, I'm really disappointed that my pull-ups have gone down. And, <laughs> right. you know, I'm not – and, you know, and that is a, a true testament to the, just the basic rinse, wash, repeat of Juliet getting sunshine, protecting her sleep watching a range of motion, being strong, feeling loved in a durable community, all of the things that we value that make us like, you know, righteous outdoors people, that durability really comes dividends because the rule is something bad is going to happen to you. You'll get into a car accident, something you'll you'll, you'll get get sick, something is going to happen. And all you can do is say, I'm as strong and in the best position and the best shape I can to manage that. And, you know, that's a testament to sort of Juliet's lifestyle and the way she approaches these problems. Well, so two crazy things, though, I just have to add to this whole story. So I actually, you know, my uh, Whitewater team was reunited in 2019, November, and we actually went down to Argentina. We really only had time to train on our own separately, not together as a group, because we all are adults and have full-time jobs, whatever. So we were reunited. Um, Maybe it was 2018. I may have the date off a little bit. But we went down there um, in November, and we actually, out of nowhere, won our third world championships, this time in the Masters Division, which is, like, comical to me. We still sort of chuckle to ourselves about that. You know, we literally went down there like, this is a reunion. We're going to get together and go do this thing we used to do. And, like, winning was not our thing. But actually, I think it was four weeks, like four or five weeks after I got back from that trip, that I was diagnosed in. And I want to start by saying very, I was diagnosed at a very early stage. I will say that, you know, when you've had any health problems, like the one kind of nice thing about that is that you're like super aware. Um, You know, I don't live in like any denial at all. And I'm also not a hypochondriac, but it's just like, I don't like skimp on, you know, I don't wait to get my mammogram and I don't wait to get my colon. Like I know that like, you know, if you catch a lot of these things early, they are treatable and as was mine. But I think the other thing is, and and I don't, when I tell this, I don't mean any judgment on anyone who does do this. But for me, like having cancer and being a cancer survivor is not a core part of my identity. And for me, it's just not part of my identity at all. I don't think it's something that I went through and it was unpleasant. And I, in both cases, was lucky enough to have caught it early, have like a relatively curable form, right? Like, so I'm very lucky, but I also, it's not how I define myself. Like I I have 20 other ways in which I define myself above that, um, that for me are a priority. So it's like a shitty thing that happened to me, but it's not who I am. And you've got so much left to do and so many things going on. I mean, I'm thinking back to your stand-up kids initiative, Juliet, and acknowledgement by Michelle Obama, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that was really cool. That was very cool. Kelly and I are like, we're always still trying to be like, how can we become friends with the Obamas? So, you know, that's still, um, we, we haven't, we haven't cracked that code yet, Barry Cruz. You got it. You got we're, a lot of, you got a pretty solid A-list we, so far. Yes. Right? We, well, we, we actually do work with the president and the current president, but the, the thing that Juliet's bringing up here is one of the things I think today that people are really lacking is this sense of neighborhood and community and experiential fellowship. Yeah. And that the experience of watching TV is not the same thing as to be outdoors and to go have this wild adventure. Like sometimes when we tell the stories, just casually we're telling stories about things that happened to us when we were boating, people are sort of, our friends are sort of horrified. <laughs> wait, wait, you you threw the raft in and then you jumped off the cliff to get it? You're like, yeah, that's the portage. I had to do Yeah, you're chugging. like, rubber chugging. Yeah, it's yeah. like what you do every day, rubber yeah, chugging, rubber no chugging, big deal. You know? People were just like, what? You know, and, um, you know, when I, I turned 21 in Kathmandu and I, I packed myself and my girlfriend off to Kathmandu when we were 20 and I was like, I'll just get a job when I'm there and I'll teach kayaking at age 20. And, you know, how do I negotiate the head I find on the beach? Like, do I go, you know, I flick the head into the river and you're just, you're 20 years old. Like, I'll work it out. And, and some of those deep, scary, have to deal experiences sets you up 
for when the bad thing happened because it is just like a shoulder is the shoulder. Stress and chaos are part of the system. It is it is a feature of the system, not a bug. Pretty and universal, you, the yeah. The sooner you get comfortable with the fact that the ass-kicking is the next time you run the river, it's the next rapid, it's the next mistake. Like you – and you know, it just happens on the river. You get punished immediately and in your life sometimes you don't feel like you get punished appropriately – and and punishment is like you not that you deserve like it's gonna happen right you you know class five means you run everything right and you still end up upside down yeah I mean that's that's the definition and you know Juliet had practiced this chaos management like thing a hundred times a thousand times so I'm not surprised that she aged through it and just aced it with such grace well and what I like so to say too is people are like oh yeah well I mean you like recover so quickly and you heal quickly I'm like no I don't. Like the human body heals at the rate the human body does. But I think the only thing that's different is that I've spent a lifetime, you know, making sure that I have these like sort of base health and fitness practices that just make it easier for me to bounce back from like physical challenges, right? And it's not to say that those things didn't take me out. Like having two huge surgeries like that was a big deal and, you know, took me out for a little while. And, you know, and I, I, it probably was six months to a year before I felt like I was like fully back at my full athletic power. So, you know, I don't want to overstate like how quickly I recovered from those things, but I also do think that, you know, my general sort of durability and base health and fitness like made me really bounce back from like big surgeries pretty quickly. And I would not only not only that though, but your mental resilience though is really yeah, apparent yeah. right you That's just everything. decided you just decided yeah. i'm going to come back at this you're just you just decided i'm not going to identify as this and and you pressed on right yeah one of our friends who uh, you mentioned laird hamilton is 10 years older than i am so now he's 48 he's 58, 58 sorry i'm 48 almost and <laughs> he's at the peak of his surfing powers right now so he doesn't have the physical thickness that he did when he was his 23 year old charger his lines are a little different. He likes to foil big on the outside because he doesn't need to take the abuse on his, you know, 15-time broken ankle. But he's as good now as he's ever been. And one of the things that I heard you say is, okay, I'm not sure I'm going to run a lot of Class 5 anymore. There's no reason why we cannot continue to be more and more skilled yeah. and to leverage decades of real critical experience. Like, I actually feel like this summer I was doing my best whitewater kayaking of my life. One of the things I want people to really hear now is that your big adventure days are not behind you. You just have to play a different game. Yeah. In the hospital, I've worked in a lot of hospitals, and as you move towards end of life, your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And pretty soon you're in the ICU, or you don't have windows. You don't. Have, you know, it just your world gets smaller. The people you interact with get smaller, and you have to struggle and work your ass off to keep that worldview open. Because I don't want you to choose to not run class five until you actually are like, it's not taken away from you, but it's a conscious choice. Right? Yeah, right. You have to pay attention to what you eat and you have to pay attention to your sleep and you can't just go out and rage and booze and then show up the next day and be great. You just can't do it anymore. So this is a nice segue, actually. I'd like to finish with kind of a lightning round of a couple of questions. One is just around what you all are doing now for business and where you're headed with your business. And then I want to wrap up by talking about the kids and about where we're headed as parents and all that. You know, as we said, we didn't really monetize the uh, Mobility Wad until 2013. And that was like, we, you know, we both launched Mobility Wad as a membership site and launched um, Becoming a Supple Leopard in the same year. And in 2019, we actually rebranded the company to from Mobility Wad to the Ready State. And that's way too long of a story to tell at sort of the tail end of this podcast. It's a cool um, name, though. It's a really but there, cool yeah, name. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think it really sort of, I think what we like about it is it really sort of captures our ethos as people, which is you know, we're trying to help people get ready for whatever it is they want to do. And again, you know, that could be Drew Brees getting ready for his, you know, next playoff game, or that could be Barry Cruz getting ready for his next Cherry Creek River trip, or that could be my mom getting ready to do Tai Chi on the weekend. Like it really just sort of captures like what we're trying to do as a company. But, you know, we, uh, we are just, you know, we've just continued to grow. We are a totally bootstrap business. And, you know, we at this point have about 15,000 members. We also teach courses to professionals um, like PTs and coaches and teach them in our methodology. And, you know, we have, we have a bunch of other products um, that help people sort of take a crack at fixing their own bodies. Um, we call them protocols. Like we have a it's, shoulder frame it's, it's protocol. It's a celebrity chef. <laughs> and she's got books and she's got chef TV and then she's got, right? So all of those things, like that's the way to think about it is that 
is JSR is a celebrity chef, and then we have all an ecosystem of things that support her chefery. It's amazing. You know, but I mean, it's been really fun. I mean, we and what I will say, uh, you know, one of the things again because we didn't start it as a business, and one of the things that's been so lucky is, you know, we actually spent almost two and a half years making free content on YouTube before we ever charged any money for it. And we actually were the first company in the health and fitness space and very early on at all in turning our platform web into a, a web tube. Like we were really very early in turning our site into a membership site. We were kind of the first to say, hey, look, like we think we're making awesome content. And while we love making videos in our garage at 10 o'clock at night, like at some point, if we're going to keep doing this, like we have to make money. And, um, it can't cost us and money. but because we had given so much to our community, like people were psyched to pay. Like we were really worried when we pressed play this one day, like, OK, now all the content you want to watch is behind this paywall. And I mean, we everyone was like, I'd pay more. This is great. You know, and so I think what we've been doing over the last, you know, seven years of running this thing as a business is just becoming more sophisticated. Our team has grown. You know, we have almost 15 people that work for us and a bunch of agencies. We're just, you know, still figuring out how to grow and scale our business. Um, you know, I'm still just having a blast, like figuring out how to be an entrepreneur and, you know, learning how to better do everything I do and create systems and be more strategic. And so, you know, we're just, you know, I think what we're really focused on now is, um, trying to figure out how we can reach more people because again like we said you know obviously we've worked with a lot of people at, at the highest levels but what we find is that we really can make a huge difference in people's lives who are struggling with like nagging pain and injury and inability to do the things they love um, and that's universal that's for anyone who uses their body for anything regardless of what their thing is so I think we're just really trying to work on ways to communicate and be more open and inclusive in ways that we can like bring in everybody I to our it. platform. So that's what we're working on now. I love it. And all the things that you're doing remind me of what I'm doing here as well, which is that I'm, you know, a podcast, you don't make much money on a podcast. I'm not making a dime. I'm spending a lot of money right now, but I love what I do. I love the people I'm meeting. I love the people that I'm reaching. I love the messages that I'm getting from people that I'm reaching. And so really, this is a passion project that may make a dollar or two someday. Who knows? But I'm having a blast with it. Well, you, that's why you started running River in the first place. Yeah. You really did. You did. Yeah. You do it for you and you do it for your friends and family. And that's simple. It's yeah. that easy. You've alluded to my general theme guide ethos throughout our conversation because you were guides and you've leveraged the things that you've known being a guide and that you learned as guides to great benefit in your personal lives and, and the rest of your business success. So looking back, thinking back, give somebody who's a 22 year old advice relating to guiding and life and business in general how can i help if you show up and ask what needs to be done in start, any situation yes how you can i help? see what you see what needs to be done and you ask what if you've done it and then you need something else you go ask how you can help and that ethos of service is what guides do they make the entire experience better by continuing to do the work that needs to be done for the group until it's done. And I can't tell you that people do not learn how to do that. If there are dishes in the sink, you'll see our friends will come over, dish in the sink, they're at our house, and they'll just do the dish because it needs to be done. The same way if they showed up on the river trip, the dish, oh, there's a dish there, pan, I'll just do that. And you know, when you wake up and someone's already made the coffee, that changes your life. And those words, though, of being proactive, how can I help, is a powerful panacea to what we need, which is more camaraderie, more connection, more excuse. And it's so easy to say, excuse me, hey, how can I help? And that, that thing goes so, so far. I, I don't remember who said it to me as a young guy, but uh, you know, if you need something to do, ask those four words, how can I help? I'm moved and inspired. Anybody who's going to love that question and just think about that four times tomorrow, four places in your life. How can I help? Where can I okay. pitch in? Right? Yeah. Cause there's a, uh, yeah. I, I mean, we couldn't agree more and we've been trying to sort of, I mean, we haven't even had a chance to talk about our kids, but I mean that just that core value, how can I help with something we've been trying to teach our kids all these years is just, you know, especially when you're a kid, you show up and you're like, I'm not sure what I should do. How can I help? And, I'm inspired to know, share the same question with my kids. Actually, I think they can really use it and they're good. And I think everybody wants to help even when they don't yeah. know to help. Right. I mean, I was talking with one of my friends about this and he said, well, I'm really reluctant to delegate because it feels like I'm just trying to give away work. But the truth is that I find as a leader, people want to help. You know, when you have people on your raft on a, on a class five run, they want to paddle. They want to participate. So I love it, Kelly. I'm really moved. Juliet, any sage piece of wisdom? I 
I really believe, and I've said this before, that my experience all those years working as a river guide and being an early manager of a big guide company was the experience that set me up to be an entrepreneur today and a successful one at that. I mean, I think that there are, I learned how to manage people, how to problem solve, how to be creative. Um, every river trip is a new business. Yeah, every, you know, just yeah. there's so many life skills I learned doing that job. I mean, more so than, and you know, there's been things that I learned being a lawyer that have been, of course, very relevant in my business career. But the things I learned at that key young age of my life as a river guide have just been so critical for me as an adult and as someone who's trying to run my own business and be a leader. And there's literally nothing I learned as a lawyer that is more relevant to what I do today than a lot of those things that I learned as a river guide. The other thing that I want to say, and I don't want to get into politics, we are in a very divided space in our country right now. And one of the skills that I think isn't talked about enough as guides that I think is maybe one of mm. the most important skills is that you have to learn how to talk to and relate to all kinds of people. And that is they're a on your really, raft. They yeah. are on your raft and they're going to be on there for eight hours. Or if you're on a multi-day trip, they're going to be on there for 10 hours. And, you know, I think I really learned, like, not to be too sensitive, not to take myself too seriously, you know, because on any given day, I might have a group of, like, eight construction guys, and then on the next day, I might have, you know, a family, and like, you know, a family with little kids, and, you know, I mean, it, you just never know who you're going to get on your raft on any given day, and you really have to develop the skill of being able to make conversation with people who you literally have nothing in common with, and I think that has served me like in a thousand ways in my life. And, you know, I, I can talk to anyone and, and I can also find, I think it's so important. Like, I feel like I know how to find common ground, yeah. even with people who, with whom I vehemently degree, disagree on politics or whatever you say, you know, whatever's going on in the world. I do really think it's true that we have like much more in common as humans. Um, and we've somehow gotten so divided thinking we're all so different from one another. And, and I think working in that environment really made me realize that, you know, if you can just relate to people about what their lives are like and what their struggles are and what they're looking forward to and, you know, just connect with people, you just, it's really profound. So friends, let's wrap up. I just want to tell you what an extraordinary time it was for me. And I also want to tell you that we had planned to do a Tuolumne trip a couple of years ago now, and you gave me an incredible gift. You said something to me that was really important to me. You don't know it, but we were going to do this trip together. And Juliet, you told me, Hey, look, Barry, I'm not terribly comfortable doing this class four run again. It's been a while since I've been on it. Would you mind carrying my kids in your raft? And this is kind of an ultimate compliment. People may not appreciate this, but you're asking me to take your children in a fairly challenging river trip and put them in my boat. So I just want you to know how much that meant to me. And just as an indicator of how much I love and respect both of you, it's really amazing for you to spend time with me. And I'm so grateful for so many things about you. Well, Barry, I look forward to actually having the opportunity to do that with you and have you take my kids down in your raft. And, you know, I just want to say, I mean, from the moment I met you, I've just been so impressed with a, who you are as a human, but like, really, I don't think what you get enough credit for is like, what a total badass you are of a river guide. <laughs> and you're kind of unassuming, right? You know, like you kind of dress like you have a corporate job, which you always have. And, you know, you showed up in your convertible sob. And in many ways, like you don't look the part of what you would expect to be this like deeply skilled. No, he was next, next level. He was, gentleman danger. Yeah, like gentleman danger. Like you are literally from a skill standpoint, and I'm not just talking pure river skills because I mean let's be honest Barry Cruz you just have this like deep level of skill as an actual guide but then forget about all that like you actually have in spades the sort of warmth and kindness and ability to talk to people that is I think the hallmark of being an amazing guide and you know it's just been and decades of practice decades of practice you I just mean, don't arrive there you know you might have the knack you might have the gift but, uh, you know, you refine that for decades and decades and decades, and you can't fake it. You know, you, you, that's why I say my great-grandfather Jack would say, you're either the guest or the host. And that was how he described it. And Juliet and I say, you're a guide or you're not a guide. And you, my friend, are one of the best guides we know. Thank you so much for saying that. And that's part of what we're trying to give away here as a gift. It's just the gift of what we've learned as guides and who we are as people and where we've come from. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Juliet. I really am grateful for you being on the show and all your support for everything about Leading Steve. Let's go, Bo. Yeah, love you, Barry Cruz. Looking forward to uh, seeing you on the river.
I know you'll now understand why I admire the Starreths so much. They're a power couple in so many ways. Tremendous business people, great adventurers, great friends, and wonderful parents. And I'll still happily recommend that you visit the Ready State with our promo code STEEP10. If you're enjoying listening to this podcast while working out or anywhere else, please share it with your spotters and your friends. Your amazing reviews on Apple Podcasts have such great impact for us, and I read every one of them. As always, please share your feedback directly with me. It's barry at leadingsteep.com. Or join us on Facebook for our conversation group, Leading Steep Fireside. When the Starrett kids raft with me someday this year, they'll ride in my sunset-inspired Sotar. It was the state-of-the-art raft when I was a 19-year-old kid myself, and it remains so for my own kids today. I write and record this show myself. The folks at usehatch.fm work out hard to get this show into its own ready state. I connected with my friends on squadcast.fm and record solo pieces on an app called Descript. Your messages and comments keep me in my own state of deep stoke. Thank you so much for listening to the Leading Steep podcast. I'm Barry Cruz. Thank you.